A tree is known by its fruit, but we don't have a lot of fruit trees around here, do we? Um, Now, don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for where we live in the Pacific Northwest. We have a lot of trees, but most of them are not fruit trees. And, um, and, you know, that's okay, because even in the middle of summer, uh, we still have green trees around us. And in the dead of winter, we still have these green trees around us. It's great. But one of the problems we run into is when we come to the Bible... Most of the examples, the illustrations that have to do with trees are talking about fruit trees, and so we might miss something. But I have a story for you, because actually just last weekend, we were here at the church cleaning up after vacation Bible camp, and my my two middle kids, Eliza and Henry, they had finished their part of the cleanup, and they had went out back here to play. And so they were playing in the grass and the swings, and all of a sudden, they run up to me with this in their hand. And they go, Dad, is this a real apple? (laughs) Dad, does the church have an apple tree? And I said, yeah, actually the church does have an apple tree. Maybe some of you did not know, but there's an apple tree right back here. And so they just, their minds were blown. I don't think they've ever actually experienced an apple tree before. And so they were so excited. They went around. They started picking up all the apples off the ground and piling them into a pile. They started grabbing all of the low-hanging fruit they could and putting it into a pile and when the time came for us to go, they were like, Dad, can we take our pile of apples home? I'm like, uh, I don't know if that's a good idea. Here, you, you can each take two. So they each picked out two apples and they brought them home. When they got home, they decided to um, look them over and decided that three of the four apples were not good to eat, so they threw them away, which is why I didn't want them bringing a whole pile home in the first place. So then they took their last remaining apple and they each took a bite of it. Just a moment. (laughs) I didn't have water the first service and I almost choked. (laughs) So that's kind of the face they made when they tried it. So there's two things about that apple tree. I don't I don't know that apple tree has ever produced really great apples. Um, And secondly, it's not ripe. This is not the season for apples. This is not the time to pick them. So that was very sour. Even for a green apple, it was very sour. Well, today in Mark chapter 11, we're going to be talking about a different kind of fruit tree. And that fruit tree is going to tell us how we rightly worship God. So let's dig into Mark chapter 11 here. As Pastor Bob took us through Mark chapter 10 last week, we we saw this going through this wilderness on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus has got his his face set towards Jerusalem. He's headed there. He's going through the wilderness. Well, now we've made it to Jerusalem. In this first verse in chapter 11, it says, Now when they drew drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany. And this is actually important, this location name, especially Bethphage. Now, that's often how we pronounce it, is Bethphage or Bethphage, maybe you've heard it pronounced, but um, if I'm not totally butchering this, the, the, the Hebrew way to pronounce it would be Bethphage. Now, this may be a little bit familiar to, if you break that word apart to understand what it means, what does Bet mean? Does anyone know? House. Yeah, maybe you've heard of Bethlehem or Bethlehem, house of bread. This is the house of figs. Now, right now, that might not be relevant at all to you, but here in a few moments, we'll see why this location being called the House of Figs is very relevant and very important. 
So this first story that we see in chapter 11 is this triumphal entry of Jesus. So I just want to walk through this story with you. They, uh, they're getting near to Jerusalem. They come over the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead of them into the next village, and he gives them very specific instructions. There they will find a young donkey, a colt, tied up, and they're to untie it and bring it back to him. And if anyone questions them, they're just to say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll bring it back when we're done. And so the two disciples go into the next village, and it happens exactly as Jesus described it. They get questioned, they, they answer the Lord has need of it, and they're allowed to take it back. So they bring this young donkey back to Jesus, and they put their cloaks on it. And Jesus sits on it, and he rides on this donkey the rest of the way into Jerusalem. But there's something else curious that's going on at this time, because there's this whole crowd of people that are coming into Jerusalem with him. These people that are coming to Jerusalem for the feast. And the people in front of him are laying down their cloaks on the road. They're laying down these leafy branches that they've got from the fields. They're laying it down on the road, preparing the way for Jesus to come into Jerusalem. And all of them, those in front, those behind, they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you remember, that word Hosanna means God save us, we pray. So what they're saying is, God save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. God in the highest, save us, we pray. There's something pretty significant going on here. But I want to help us understand it from a few different viewpoints. So one viewpoint is our viewpoint as the reader. We're reading through the book of Mark, and what do we understand that's going on here? We have some insights because of things that Mark has laid out. We probably have some insights because we know what's about to happen to Jesus. And so when we look at this, we understand. They're saying, God save us. Well, who is Jesus? He's the Savior that's come to save his people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is, Jesus is coming in the name of the Lord. And, and then this connection to the kingdom of our father David. We know that Jesus is David's heir. He is the true king of Israel. And we see this picture of the king, the humble king, mounted on a donkey, coming into his kingdom, coming into the capital city of Israel, to Jerusalem. And so we see this beautiful picture there. But what were the people thinking at that time? That's another viewpoint that we need to look at. So the people coming in with him, they don't see this whole picture that we see. They only see part of it. Now, don't get me wrong, they're still honoring Jesus. But this song that they're singing, they didn't make it up for him. This is a normal pilgrimage song that they usually sing when they're coming into Jerusalem for the feasts. This is kind of a normal thing that would happen. And there is this special connection to Jesus. They're recognizing, you know, we're going in to Jerusalem for the feast, and the, the prophet Jesus is coming with us. Isn't he great, all the miracles that he does and the great teachings that he does? This is great that we have the prophet Jesus with us. But they don't understand the full significance of what's going on. John, in the book of John, it tells us the disciples didn't even understand until after his death and resurrection when they looked back. Then they understood what was going on here. So that's another perspective. They they. they are saying these things almost prophetically. They don't even realize that they are proclaiming this new king coming into Jerusalem. There's a third perspective. And this is the perspective of the dedicated Bible reader. The one who has read through their Bible and they paid special attention reading through the prophets. Because in the prophet of Ezekiel, he has this vision. This vision of the temple. And he sees the glory of God departing from the temple, leaving the temple, going out from Jerusalem, 
down through the Kidron Valley and out over the Mount of Olives, never to be seen again until now. What has just happened? Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The glory of God has come back over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, back into Jerusalem, to the very temple itself. The glory of God has returned to the temple. But what happens? Verse 11 here says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out of Bethany with the twelve. How disappointing is that? The glory of God has come back to the temple. And he looks around and he leaves. Something's not right here. So we see more of this the next day. They're on their way back in to Jerusalem. And it says that Jesus was hungry. We pick up here in verse 13. It says, And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. This has got to be one of the strangest stories in the Gospels. There's some weird stories in the Bible, but in, in the Gospels and the stories about Jesus, this has got to be one of the strangest ones. Because what does it seem like is going on on the surface here? It seems like Jesus is a little bit hangry. Uh, you know, he's looking for some breakfast, and this tree doesn't have any fruit on it, and so he gets angry at it, and he curses it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. But then, especially, we get this little note that Mark's put, Mark puts in here that it's not even the season for figs. Jesus isn't even justified in his anger toward the tree because it wasn't supposed to have figs anyways, right? And we read that and we go, I'm missing something here. Something's not right because this seems out of character for Jesus. So what's really going on here with this fig tree? Well, there's two things we need to understand. The first is a lesson on fig trees. I know all of you were coming here this morning to learn more about fig trees so you could go out and be fig tree farmers. Um, so you'll get some of that information today. I had to do some research on fig trees. Well, like any other fruit tree, right, they get harvested and then in the winter they lose their leaves. And in the spring... This is what happens to a fig tree. Before the leaves even grow, these little green buds sprout. And you could call them pre-figs. There's actually fruit in there that you can eat. Now, it's not very good to eat. It's kind of like my sour apple here. But it is still edible. And then after those grow, then the leaves grow in. And then after the leaves grow in, then the real figs grow. The nice, juicy figs that are delicious. So what does that tell us about this? When Jesus came to that fig tree, even though it wasn't the season for ripe figs, he still should have been able to get breakfast from it. But he doesn't. And what does it tell you about this fig tree? The fig tree looks really good on the outside. It's got all the leaves, but it's not bearing fruit. And that's a problem. You see, it doesn't bother us too much when a tree doesn't bear fruit here because most of our trees don't bear fruit. We like them for the way they look. We like them for the shade that they provide. But over there, especially back then, fruit trees were part of your life. You know, you needed that fruit from those trees, the harvest from that, to live off of. And so if you have a fig tree that's not producing fruit, what do you do? You cut it down. There's actually a parable about this in Luke, where there's this, this master who has the fig tree, and it hasn't borne fruit for three years, and so he wants to cut it down. But the gardener says, let me dig around it. Let me put some fertilizer in it. 
we'll give it one more chance, one more year. And if it doesn't grow fruit after that, we will cut it down. So that's the first thing we learn is this tree, although it looked really good, was not a fruit-bearing tree. There was something wrong with it. But there's also a second thing going on here that's really important. Jesus is not doing a revenge miracle. He's He's not doing this because he's angry at the tree. He's using this as an opportunity to teach something. We're going to see the miracle that happens from this, from him cursing it. But I'm going to tell you today that the point was not the miracle. In fact, I would not include this on a list of Jesus' miracles. I would include it with his parables, with his teachings, because he's trying to show us something bigger that's going on. See, Jesus found a fig tree that isn't bearing fruit. And then he walks straight into a temple that isn't bearing worship. He goes into Jerusalem. In verse 15 it says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus comes to the temple, and he immediately takes action. Remember, he was just there last night. He saw what was going on. And so he immediately takes action. He starts driving out those who are or given three things that are wrong in the temple, three things that he's stopping. The first one is the buying and selling. The second is the money changing. And the third is people using the temple as a shortcut into Jerusalem. So let's, let's walk through these things to try to understand because there's kind of that question of what's the big deal? Why is this such a big deal? Why is Jesus disrupting this kind of normal thing that's going on in the temple? And, and maybe this started out with good intentions. The religious leaders at that time saw an opportunity to help people. But it's clear that it's now turned into something else. So the buying and the selling, what was that about? Well, most people that come to the temple, they, bring, they need to bring a sacrifice with them to be offered. And so if they're not raising their own cattle, which a lot of the people weren't, if they aren't raising their own sacrifices, they have to stop somewhere along the way to get a sacrifice to bring into the temple. Well, why not just make it a one-stop shop? Let's include that in the process of the temple, and we'll have, uh, you know, we'll have temple-approved sacrifices right here where you can buy them. And that sounds like a nice idea, but maybe some of us, maybe we see some of the trouble with this. It's kind of like, I don't know if this is a good example, but um, when you go to the movie theater and they don't let you bring in your own candy, you're supposed to buy their candy. Why do they do that? I think we all know why they do that. And easily this turns into that as a way to make money instead of as a way to help people worship God and offer sacrifices. So along with that, there, there comes this next step, the money changing. Because you can't buy holy sacrifices with dirty money. And Roman money is dirty money. And so you need to exchange that for for this better money, for Israeli shekels. So they have this money exchange set up there. Exchange your Roman money, get Israeli shekels. Then you can go and you can buy the holy sacrifice. And if you've ever been to another country and had to exchange your money, you kind of know how that works. And once again, what's the problem with this? Well, the guy who works at the money-changing booth, he needs to make a living. And so you end up not getting quite as much money back as you gave. 
And, and once again, this, this, maybe it's okay on the surface. Maybe it was okay initially, but it easily turns into a way for people to make money. And it's disrupting the worship of God. The same thing with the people using the temple as a, as a shortcut into Jerusalem. Rather than having to go around to a different gate, they just come through the temple. Well, where was this going on? Where was all of this happening? Was it outside the temple? No, this was in the court of the Gentiles, in the court of the nations. This was supposed to be the place where all peoples could come and worship the one true God. But what has it turned into? What does Jesus describe it as? It's turned into a den of robbers. The worship in the temple has been disrupted. People are distracted, no longer worshiping, but trying to make money. And I found out that actually this whole, the sacrifice business was one of the most profitable businesses in Israel because of all the people that came to bring sacrifices. This was a way for those religious leaders to make a lot of money. The temple is no longer about worship. It's about making money. So Jesus comes in, and I wouldn't say that he cleanses the temple. I know that the heading above this, this section says that. Remember, that's not part of Scripture. That was added later. I would say that Jesus is coming in, and he's condemning the temple. Jesus is coming in to disrupt the disruption, to show that what they're doing is wrong, that they need to turn their hearts back to worship. Worship has withered in the temple. The glory of God returned last night and today to the temple, but they don't recognize him. They're not focused on worship, they're focused on something else. And that leads us to the conclusion of the fig tree story. They go back out that night, and on the next morning, they're coming back into Jerusalem again, taking that same route that they took before. It says, Verse 20, and they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I already mentioned that this was a strange story, but now we get an even stranger response from Jesus right here. Have you ever been a little bit confused by what Jesus does here, what he's talking about? Because on the surface, what does it sound like? It sounds like he's giving them tree-cursing lessons. Like, hey, you know... Um, if you're ever hungry, you're out hungry, and you see a fruit tree, and you go to get fruit from it, and there's, there's nothing there, then you know what? Just have faith in God. You know, have faith in God. If you have enough faith, you can move mountains. So cursing fig trees is easy. Have faith in God. Pray. It will be given to you. And then you can curse that fig tree and get your vengeance on it. Does that sound like Jesus? Does that sound a little bit out of character for him? And I'll be honest, I've read this story many times and just been a little confused, a little uncomfortable. Why does Jesus go here with this? But in order to understand what's going on, we need to take a step back and look at the whole chapter and see what's going on here. This chapter started with the triumphal entry. The glory of God has come to be worshipped in the temple, but they don't recognize it. 
What should have happened? What would have been the right response to the glory of God coming back to the temple? Now, recognize that Jesus didn't expect this to happen. But what should have happened was they should have taken him into the Holy of Holies, set him up above the mercy seat, because that's the part of the temple that corresponds with the heavenly temple where the throne of God is. They should have set him up there, and they should have worshipped him. All of Israel should have come and worshipped the one true God. All of the world should have come and worshipped the one true God. But what happened? Worship has withered in the temple. There's actually a transition that's taking place right now. In, in the midst of this story, there's a transition taking place about worship. You see, the temple was the center of worship in Israel. In the world, technically, it's the one true God. This is his place. This is where you come and worship him. But there's a transition taking place where that is no longer going to be the place of worship. Jesus talks about this with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. There's this discussion going on about where is the proper place to worship. Is it Mount Zion in Jerusalem or is it Mount Gerizim? And Jesus says, you're wrong. It's not Mount Gerizim. But soon, even now, those who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's no longer about where you worship. It's about how you worship, about who you worship. Jesus is replacing the temple as the center of worship in Israel, in the world. Now, for us, that sounds great. That makes sense. That's all we've ever known. We've never had a temple to go worship in. But how would the people at that time have felt about that? They're pretty attached to the temple. The temple is that place that you go and you worship. And if the temple's not going to be here anymore, if that's no longer where real worship is happening, what happens with your faith? It goes out the window. The temple was the foundation of your faith. How will my prayers be heard if there's no temple? How will I be forgiven if there's no place to offer sacrifices? Maybe you can feel the weight of what that would feel like. Now we know that, that there's a difference between our church here and the temple. Our church here is not the temple. That we, have, we the people of God, are now the temple of God. And yet, sometimes we still feel an attachment to coming and worshiping together in this place. That last year, when we had two months where we didn't worship here together, a lot of you felt that. And you couldn't wait to get back here to worship. So maybe you can identify with those people, with the disciples at that time, for feeling that way about the temple. What would happen if the temple was gone? If that was no longer the place to truly worship God? And that's why Jesus responds the way that he does. Mark leaves out the connection between the fig tree and the temple because he's assuming that we see it. This should be obvious to us. The fig tree represents the temple. The fig tree represents the current religious leaders at that time. It looks really good on the outside, but there's no fruit. There's no worship, true worship going on there. So what does true worship look like? Well, we see it here in his response. Have faith in God. Don't worry about the temple. Have faith in God. God is so much bigger than a temple. God is in control. He can move mountains. Pray. Even without a temple, your prayers will be answered. Prayer is a huge part of our worship to God. The posture of prayer is a posture of worship before God. Praising him, confessing our sins, asking for help, interceding on behalf of others. This is a big part of our worship, of right, of true worship before God is praying to him. 
And we have forgiveness in God. And our forgiveness doesn't come from offering a sacrifice. That sacrifice was offered on the cross once and for all in Jesus. And so I have forgiveness in him because of what Jesus did on the cross, which we're going to see in the next few chapters of Mark here. This is what Jesus is doing with this response. He's trying to show them what real, what true worship is like because worship in that temple at that time is worthless. True worship is having faith in God, praying to him with confidence, praying in Jesus' name with confidence that he hears us and knowing that our sins are forgiven. And that's what this whole chapter is about. It's about right and true worship before God. So what do we do with this? Because we don't have this whole temple thing going on. We already know that Jesus is the center of worship. We all know that, that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. But do we always do it? I have a very specific application that I'm going to get to in a moment, but something I was thinking a lot about the last two days was the impact that this has on my own life. And I, and I had a realization, especially yesterday, of how often does my worship of God turn into just going through the motions. It looks good on the outside, but it's empty and fruitless on the inside. How many times have I come here on a Sunday morning and sang the songs and yet not really felt close to God, not really felt like I was really worshiping him? I get up in the morning every day and I read my Bible and I pray. But there's times where it just feels empty. I feel distant from God. And I realized, just as Pastor Evan talked about in between the first and second song, all of these obstacles that we put in our life between us and God, all of these obstacles that we have to true worship. And, and Pastor Evan poked at one that, that just really made me realize why the last month of my life has felt so dry. And it's just the busyness of life gets in the way of true worship to God. And it's, sometimes it's good things. We've got a brand new baby, and that's a wonderful thing. We've got lots of ministry going on. These are good things that are going on. But when I'm more worried about that than I am about connecting and worshiping God truly, I'm missing something. I'm distracted. I've got obstacles in the way of my worship before God. And I can tell you right now that there is nothing more important than worshiping God. This is the purpose for which we were created, to worship the one true God in spirit and in truth. That is what our lives are all about, is worshiping God. And there is nothing that will fulfill you more than truly worshiping him. Nothing in your life can give you satisfaction like truly worshiping God. And yet, every other thing in our life will try to pull us away from it. Every other obstacle and distraction that we have will pull us away from true worship to God. What are the things in your life, as innocent as they may seem, are distracting you from truly worshiping God for who he is. One of them might be this example that we get right here in this passage. Verse 25, at the end of this paragraph here, Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You're probably familiar with that verse. And sometimes it can be a little bit of an uncomfortable one. Because what does it sound like is going on here? It sounds like, especially when you look at it in Matthew, in the Lord's Prayer, 
he, he ends with another verse here that says, if you don't forgive someone their sins, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. And that sounds like, if I don't forgive others, God will not forgive me. And we need to sit there for just a moment and recognize the weight of this. This is a serious thing. Forgiveness or unforgiveness is a very serious thing. Especially because of how much it's tied to the gospel. But we also have to recognize that if we take this too far, we know that the ways that we think about it can't be true. Because if it's necessary that I forgive others in order for God to forgive me, just that plain reading like that, that means I have to do something in order to earn my salvation. That means that I have to forgive others, I have to do a work in order to be saved, and we know that that's not true. We are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works. What I want to tell you today is this isn't an issue of salvation, this is an issue of an obstacle to worship. Unforgiveness gets in the way of our worship to God. And this is a great application for us because I think a lot of us struggle with forgiveness. All of you in here have people in your life that have done wrong against you. Some of you have probably had some pretty horrific things done against you. And maybe you've struggled to forgive that person. And I want to help you with that today because whenever we struggle to forgive someone, that creates an obstacle between us and God. Now, all sin creates an obstacle between us and God, and we know that Jesus has broken down that barrier. But whenever we sin again, once it gets in the way of our worship to God, and we need to confess our sins, not in order to be saved, but in order to remove those obstacles and truly worship God. But we often don't think of unforgiveness as a sin, do we? So, is it a sin to not forgive someone? What do you think? What did Jesus say? How many times are you supposed to forgive someone that's done wrong against you? Is it seven times? No. It's 70 times seven times. There is no limit to the amount of forgiveness that you are supposed to extend towards other people because there is no limit to the amount of forgiveness that has been extended towards you in Christ. We are called to forgive others time and time again because God has forgiven us. And I want to help you to do that this morning. So there's two things I want to talk about with forgiveness that will hopefully help you see it in a new light and understand it better. The first is that there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. They are two different things. Sometimes we feel like because we don't have a relationship with that person, that we must not have forgiven them. But they're two separate things. There's, there's people in your life that you that have done wrong against you that you're never going to see again. Some of them are even dead. You never will have the opportunity for, to forgive them to their face. And that's okay. You can still forgive them in your heart before God. There are people who won't admit that they've done anything wrong against you, and yet you should still forgive them in your heart before God. And that's where forgiveness starts. Now, the next step after that is to seek reconciliation with that person, to restore the relationship, just as God has done with us. He's forgiven us, and he's reconciled us to himself. We should seek that reconciliation. But it doesn't always happen. And that's okay. It starts with forgiving them in your heart before God. So, that's the first one, and that helps you out a little bit, right? Okay, maybe seeing that difference. But there's another side of it as well. I want you to imagine a situation and maybe this will hit close to home for you. Imagine that somebody has done something horrific, just horrible against you. 
And maybe they come and they apologize, but you say, I know you're sorry, but I just can't forgive you. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've had that said to you before. I just can't forgive you. But I want you to take it a step further. Keep going with this situation, because if you say that, then you really have to say this next part as well. I know you're sorry. I just can't forgive you. I know God has forgiven you, but I just can't forgive you. You know, I, I just have a little bit of higher standard than God does. Now, I apologize if that sounded sarcastic, but I just can't say it genuinely because it's so ridiculous. Can you imagine saying that to somebody? I have a higher standard than God. That doesn't make any sense. They are forgiven by the same blood of Jesus that has forgiven you, that has forgiven me. And when I realized this in my own life, it hit me that how could I ever not forgive someone? I have been forgiven by God for so much more than anyone has ever done to me. How can I not forgive them? And understanding that perspective, it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. People have done some pretty horrific things. It may not be easy, but you're only hurting yourself when you don't forgive them. That's a burden that you're carrying around, an obstacle to your true worship before God. And what you'll find when you extend that gospel forgiveness, that forgiveness that's based on the blood of Jesus to other people, that weight falls off of your shoulders and you find yourself glorifying and worshiping God for his grace and his forgiveness in your own life. Unforgiveness is an obstacle to true worship of God. And true worship of God is the most important thing we do with our life. And that's what this chapter is all about. It's all about helping us understand what right and true worship is. Jesus should have been worshipped when he came to the temple, but they didn't recognize him because worship had withered. And we don't want worship to wither in our own life. And the problem is, our natural tendency is, is for that to happen. Our natural tendency is to be distracted by all these different things going on in the world in life. We must remove those distractions. We must seek God. We must know and follow Jesus because it's only through that that we can rightfully and truly worship God. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. This is a great opportunity here this morning to come to this table. Because this table is a reminder of our forgiveness, of our salvation that is found in Jesus. Um, if you did not grab the elements when you came in, you're welcome to go back to the table there now and grab them. But I want to take a, an opportunity here this morning to do something a little different. I want to have a moment of silence here in a minute um, for you to, number one, to ask forgiveness from God, to remove any of those obstacles of sin in your life, ask for his forgiveness. Remove that obstacle so you can come and rightly worship him today in a little bit different way. Uh, it's in the ba- on the back table back there. You're good, yeah. <clears throat> and so, to ask for forgiveness. But also, this is an opportunity for you to forgive someone that you have not forgiven yet. If there's someone that comes into your mind as we talk about unforgiveness, I want you to think about that. To forgive them in your heart before God this morning, before we partake of these elements together. So now let's just have a few moments of silence while Jim plays the piano and we can contemplate and think about these things.
Lord, we thank you that you have sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. And we thank you for the forgiveness that you offer to us. And I pray that if there's anyone in our lives that we have not forgiven, that we would forgive as well, to remove that obstacle that we have to true worship to you. And that we would come and worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. Even as we partake of these elements together, even as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that this would be a true act of worship before you. We pray this in your name, Jesus.